Welcome to the teaching ministry at Carthus Creek Community Church. Well, good morning, Carthus Creek. We're glad you're joining us here on basically the almost the last weekend of summer. I'm so sorry. Uh, we welcome you, all of us, all of you also who are on our online community. We're really glad you're joining us uh, wherever you might be on a go train or at a cottage or in another country. God bless you. We're glad you're with us here today. Well, as Sarah and Joanna both referenced, we are now coming to the end of our series, Lakes, Lemonade, and Lamentations. And I think some of you are excited that we're coming to the end of this series. It's been an unbelievable series, a stretching series to say the least. We together as a family this summer have walked and struggled and questioned and wondered about God, our world, our faith, and ourselves. From the past and the present to the future, we've been brought to the point of abandonment and even despair, but also hope and wonder all at once. We've learned the depths it takes to become a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ, reading through this great Old Testament book called Lamentations. Authentic, genuine, and relevant faith goes to the depths of sin, calls for repentance. It says we need to argue with God through the act of prayer. We need to cry out for justice in a world of injustice. We need to wait and wonder as we live in the land of in-between. He has forcefully reminded all of us that the only thing that's consistent, though, in our reality is God himself. Now, I know we as a culture love a good book or a movie that ends well. You know what I'm talking about, with victory, hope, uh, the enemy is overcome, the couple that meet in the movie actually fall in love and get married at the end, or all the pain is removed. And yet, as we come to chapter 5 in Lamentations, it doesn't end on a great high like that, nor does it end on a low. It sort of ends somewhere in the middle. Reading this book has been like a roller coaster. Most of us don't want to get on for a very long time. Would you agree? It's been an interesting experience. Chapter 1 starts here and it begins to plunge us down. And chapter 2 plunges us farther down. Chapter 3 even worse. And then rips us back up because there's hope. But then chapter 4 plunges us to the floor. And then chapter 5 sort of ends here in the middle. Does it end with hope? Sort of, we think. The final chapter of Lamentations really is one last mournful address to God. But in this song of loss, in this song of wonder, two questions now emerge, two calls, two hopes begin to come forth. And the first is this, the people of God ask God to do one thing, remember, remember them, remember his own promises, remember his own character. Simply put, it is a call for God to remember their current condition. The second stanza in this song is actually almost demanding God to restore his people back to himself and also restore that amazing time where peace and prosperity, where God and his people were in unity. One pastor summarized this last part of our journey this way. The chapter, he basically says, is a call or a challenge for God to remember and is a plea for God to restore, which now invites conversation between people and God. Conversation, though, here means much more than the exchange of pleasantries about recent news. A corporate call here is done in the act of worship. The topic of conversation, then, is actually saying, God, could we possibly have a relationship with you again? And of course, as we've seen from Lamentations 1 all the way to this chapter, it always begins with prayer and confession. Now, don't forget that the claims that we are about to read, that sometimes we struggle with because they're done so strongly back into God's face, are actually grounded in God's character and actually in his own word. The scriptures say God's word never turns void. And so the people of God, after dealing with sin and being honest, come back to God and they ask for restoration based on the promises that he had already given. 
Over the last few weeks, we've hung out in Deuteronomy chapter 28, where we saw the blessing and the cursings, and God had warned them. But now, in Deuteronomy 30, we begin to see why the people of God could come back to God's face and almost demand this. This is what it says in verse 1. When all the blessings and curses I've set before you come upon you and take them to heart wherever the Lord your God disperses you among the nations. And when you and your children return to the Lord your God and obey him with all your heart and with all your soul according to everything I've commanded you today, then, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have compassion on you, will gather you from among the nations where he scattered you, even if you have been banished to the most distant lands under the heavens. From there, the Lord your God will gather you and bring you back. And so the promise is given to the people of God. But before we and they get to see this post-exile light, before we can engage in hope, Lamentations 5 once again walks us through a catalog of characters whose lives have been shattered because of sin itself and the loss of God's city called Jerusalem. The song begins as all of the songs have begun. Broken, shattered, and destitute. Verse 1 reads like this. Remember, O Lord, What's happened to us? Look. Look upon our disgrace. God, look at us. Look at us. You have to look at us. Don't shut your ear to my plea for help. God, look at us right now. Listen. Don't turn away. Don't you dare run. Don't you close your eyes. Don't cover your ears. I am crying up to you. You must remember. Look at our disgrace. This is not just saying, well, God, look and then move on. Nor is it saying, well, God doesn't see at all. I mean, we know the scriptures are clear that God is all-present. He is all-knowing. He's all-powerful. That's why Proverbs says, the eyes of the Lord are everywhere, keeping watch on the wicked and the good. This is a call for God to look and then act. And as we've learned a few weeks ago, this type of radical prayer is rarely done in any church circle. And we almost consider it sinful at times. And yet, it is taught throughout all of scripture. As I quoted a few weeks ago, Richard Foster summarizes this so well with other authors. Biblical prayer, writes Walter Wink, is impertinent. It's persistent. It's shameless. It's more like haggling with God in a bazaar than some polite monologue you find in churches. It's like Abraham who bargained with God over the fate of a city. It's like Moses arguing with God over the fate of his people. Like Esther pleading for a nation's life. Our spiritual defiance involves attempting to change God's mind when we believe it actually is consistent with his character. Sometimes Write the theologian Donald Bloch, the prayer of faith involves defiance of God, bordering on presumption. Martin Luther himself, the great reformer, said these words, The might of prayer is so great that it has overcome not only earth, but heaven itself. He even spoke of conquering God in the sense that we seek to bind God to his own word and his own promises. This form of prayer is the most powerful type of prayer Yet let me say very wisely this morning, it is also one of the most intimate styles of prayer. For only a person that truly knows God in a deep way and actually knows his promises could ever pray such prayers like this. Because if they did it without that relationship or without the Holy Scriptures, they themselves would test God or take his name in vain. The song continues, our inheritance has been turned over to aliens, God. Our homes to foreigners, we've become orphaned, fatherless. Our mothers, like widows, we must buy water to drink. Our wood can only be bought at a price. Those who pursue us are at our heels. We are weary. We find no rest. 
History teaches us that occupation forces are now stationed in the land. And like we learned last week, Edom in the south has now annexed large amounts of rural Judea. The few that survived this terrible assault cry out, We have not only lost our property, God, we've actually lost our basic human rights. All our water and wood for cooking and washing and for fire, they're not even accessible anymore. It it costs so much, God, and, and we've got nothing. The basics of life are not even ours, and even more of us are now dying because of this. And what's the result? Three little words. Find no rest. Stop this morning and hear this gift, we who gather and you who listen. This warning is so important for us in our culture and as a church. Sin, hear this, no matter how good, how good-looking, how right it feels, how right it sounds, it never, never, never will bring rest to your own soul. The opposite of rest is slavery to tyrants. Later, Jesus would teach this, of course. You are always, he would teach us, owned by someone or something else. And if that thing or person or worldview is anything but the living God of heaven and earth, you will never, ever find rest in your life. Lamentations would back up, of course, what Jesus would teach. Come to me, Jesus would say. We know this passage. Come to me. All you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you what? Rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. I'm gentle. I'm humble in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. It's a promise. It's a guarantee. Jesus promises rest. And God in the Old Testament promised his people rest. Rest for the deepest part of us. But it requires one thing. That we choose to take on his yoke and not another yoke. If we don't, then we'll be yoked to sin. Lost dreams, broken relationships, dead religion, or lies. The belief in our culture that we are independent is just that. It's a lie. One said we should remember that the rest that Jesus offers is not relaxation from the demands of right godly living, but a new relationship with God which makes it possible to fulfill them. It's not the removal of all yokes, but it's a new yoke. It's a kind yoke which actually makes the burden light. A yoke, by the way, in Scripture implies one thing. It implies obedience and actually slavery. And what makes the difference is who you get to serve. If you choose a tyrant, you will live with no rest. If you choose God, you will have rest. And so the song in Lamentations 5 continues, and they just, in honesty, recount and admit that they yoke themselves with others other than God, false idols and demons and other nations, and it killed rest for All of them. We submitted ourselves to Egypt, they cry, and Assyria to get enough bread. Our fathers sinned, and they're no more, and we bear their punishment. Slaves now rule over us, and there is no free, and there is none to free us from their hands. One person put it this way, Judah pledged her allegiance both to Egypt and Assyria for one simple reason, national security. Read scripture, God had promised that to them already. Judah's past leaders, their fathers, shifted allegiance between countries, and their fickleness in the end destroyed them. And their sin brought their death, and the survivors that are left are still bearing their punishment. Stop. You don't believe in generational sin? Right here. You don't believe that the sins of your fathers and your father's fathers can affect you? Right here. The present death of them was happening because of sin from those in the past. 
The present generation here is not even claiming to be suffering unjustly for their forebear sin. They understood we're not radical individuals, but we are communal beings who are affected in families. They saw their punishment as a logical outcome, a logical conclusion to their ancestors' sin. Their forefathers' willing submission to godless nations in the end was now bearing bitter fruit. There is no rest. We get bread at risk of our own lives because of the sword in the desert. Our skin is as hot as an oven, feverish with hunger. The people that had survived the 30-month siege now needed to scavenge for food. And as they wandered the desert area, either going to buy food or to find food, they were now being attacked by groups of nomads that were killing them. And like all war zones and places that have experienced trauma on a national level, not only is the soul slashed, but now they are all weakened physically. The ancient way of expressing this is found here. Our skin was like an oven. Those who are alive are sick. They are ravaged by hunger and thirst. Fever and sickness now mark this whole group of people. But then the song at this moment takes a darker turn. It plunges us deeper in that roller coaster. The song cries out about things that are so wrong, so painful, so evil. Just to talk about them, let alone anyone experiencing them, brings darkness and loss on a level that we just can't handle sometimes. The song is about to admit that here murder and abuse are normative. These acts kill the soul, the family, and human relationships, and most never, ever recover from them in their own lifetimes. And many of us know, too, that these acts, when they're done, not only damage the person, but generations to come. Women, they've been ravaged in Zion. The towns of Judah, the virgins in the towns of Judah, princes have been hung by their hands, elders are shown no respect, young men toil by the millstones, boys, boys stagger under loads of work, the elders are gone from the city gate, the young men have stopped their, their music. Lamentations pulls no punches here. It simply says that women and little girls are being raped en masse by sadistic soldiers. There's one wrote in the scene of savage brutality, repeated by every conquering army in history, the victors went on a wanton spree of lustful revenge against defenseless women in the city and in the rural towns. This wasn't bad enough. Then it says the princes are being hung by their hands. In this time, the way that you dealt with those that rebelled against you was usually by hanging or impaling but here actually we see something, a new development in torture. Here is the early forms of crucifixion, which later the Babylonians would perfect. It says that young, men, young women are being raped and old women are being raped. And men, they, those who once led, the elders, are being publicly murdered by some gruesome form of crucifixion. But it continues on. Not only women, not only elders, not only princes, but now young men and boys are being used like animals. Remember... A 30-month siege doesn't leave any meat left. All the animals that would have been used to do labor have now all been killed or eaten. And so now this army begins to take kids, like from C4 kids, and teenagers and young adults, and puts them into slavery. And now they are actually doing the tasks of animals. Rape, public torture, death, slavery. No churchy sayings will work here, right? No name it or claim it theology. Just have more faith and it's all going to be okay. No bumper sticker Christianity. No sound bites. The one thing they experience, even as God's people, is this. It's blackness. 
barely able to speak it out. Choked by dust and debris and death, the community, community finally says what is so close. It's the cry of their very soul. Joy is gone from our hearts. Our dancing is turned into mourning. Wisdom and justice and happiness are gone. They have fled from the city. Worship and praise is now gone. Joy is broken. There is nothing left. One wrote, the believing community finds itself not only weary, but actually feeling as an outcast, like there was no joy in the Lord anymore. And then again, as it's been done verse after verse, song after song, they admit, they choose once again not to blame others, not to lie, not to exaggerate. They don't raise a fist to heaven and say, you did this. They look at themselves through the shattered mirror of experience and say these words. Our crown has fallen from our heads. Woe to us, for we, we've sinned. This little verse so well summarizes the whole book of Lamentations. Our crown has fallen. The glory, the majesty, the good old days which once belonged to this great city and us has vanished like smoke. And why? We sinned. Never forget what sin is. Sometimes that's one of the words we use in church circles so quickly and randomly. We forget what sin actually is. Sin is thoughts and words and deeds that constitute a deliberate violation of God himself and his will and his law. It's missing the mark. It's trespassing to places we're not allowed to go, but we do it anyway. It's iniquity. And all sin done against others or ourselves ultimately in the end, of course, is sin against God because his law actually emanates his DNA. And so the end of the first stanza finishes with fading hope and it's expressed in nothing but a hoarse tone. Because of this, our hearts are faint. Because of these things, our eyes grow dim. For Mount Zion, which lies desolate with jackals prowling all over it. Never forget, this is not a recounting of history. This is a prayer. This is a song. And how did it begin? God, remember this. Look, there is nothing left. And then suddenly, the song shifts again in a different direction. The heart of the people. This is sung communally, right? The eyes of the people, the hands of the people move from below and looking around and they look suddenly beyond the fire and beyond the experiences and beyond the army. They look up beyond the skies, beyond the stars to the creator God. They look to the one they had known and they still knew from a distance. They look to the one true sovereign God and they utter these needed words even today. You, O Lord, you, O Lord, reign forever. Your throne endures from generation to generation. There is permanence, they say. There is a stability in you, God. You never change. See, the songwriter is appealing to God's character, which is the only thing that can give them hope. Even though God's children have been disobedient and they've been idolatrous, God still is consistent and he's very, very faithful. Paul would later put it this way. If we're faithless, he remains faithful. Why? He can't disown himself. The author and the community knows God would never violate his word because it's him. And let's forget, not forget again, Judah's not suffering because God got defeated by the Babylonian gods. 
He's the one who decided to put the curse on the people because he had warned them. Yet the same God who brought curse could also bring redemption and restoration. And so the community cries out and wrestles with and argues with. They bang on heaven's door and say, Savior, Father, Lord, and King. And then they say these words. Verse 20. Why do you always forget us? Why do you forsake us for so long? Two questions come because they knew he had the ability to save. They knew his name was Savior. Will you forget us? And why is this taking so long? We've admitted our sin. We know that you're faithful to your word. You've promised you're coming back. You've promised we're going to come back. We've read Deuteronomy 30. We've read Leviticus 26. How long, O Lord? How long, O Lord? How long, O Lord? When's the last time your prayer life looked like that? And then at that moment, at the height of wrestling with God, they utter a verse that shines in darkness. They howl and wail out a prayer, a prayer of desperation, which in turn every generation of the people of God, when has been prayed genuinely, has moved the heart of God and has brought about something we are praying for here, revival. Here's one of the most important verses in all of Lamentations. Restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we may return Renew our days as of old. The people of Judah were calling on God to fulfill the remainder of his promise to them. Restore us to yourself, they cried, that we get to come back. If heaven doesn't act, we never can come back. We can never have joy or worship or have community. We can never be fully human, fully rested, fully restored. We will have no glory to give back to you unless you allow us to come back. We're made to walk with you, God, to know you, to give you glory. Move, God, we pray, or we die. If you don't decide to revive us and renew us, you will never get glory, splendor, beauty, wonder, grandeur, credit. That's due you. You've made us to walk in the garden with you, right? You've made us to give you glory. But unless you start the process, we'll never get to do it again. And then they said these words, the last verse in Lamentations. Do this, we cry, unless. Unless you've utterly rejected us and you're angry with us beyond measure. And suddenly the book of Lamentations ends like that. Not high or not low, sort of here. Now understand something. When that last verse was uttered, it was genuine. But they knew in their hearts he was not angry with them forever. I learned this week that when Jewish communities gather in synagogues to worship, and they read through Lamentations chapter 5, they read verse 21, They read verse 22, and then they reread verse 21 again out loud because they know the promises of God are true. And so this last phrase comes out, and they say, God, we know you would not do this because the results of your curses could never remove the covenant. They had read Leviticus 26, but in spite of their behavior, while they're among their enemies, I won't reject them or abhor them or destroy them completely. I won't break my covenant with them. And so the book of Lamentations ends on a note of sort of hope, one said. In spite of severe suffering because of their sin, Judah has not been abandoned as a nation. God was still sovereign. His covenant with Israel was still in operation despite their terrible disobedience. And the hope for the nation was that one day, one day God would actually come back and bring them back out of captivity and restore them. Now as we come this last summer Sunday, 
one last time to seek God, to ask God what he would speak to us as a community. We need to listen carefully. We need to listen carefully because the themes he has taught us matter. Over seven weeks, we've been challenged to grow. We've seen Lamentations teach us how to articulate grief as believers and also pain. It gives us spiritual discernment to push us beyond spiritual laziness or malaise. It shows us how to complain through prayer to God and have hope in God. It bluntly reminds us that some suffering, not all suffering, but some suffering comes because of sin. It shows us the need and value of confession. But it also taught taught us this. Judgment by God on believers clears ground for new amazing growth because there are no excuses left to pull out of the bag. But lastly, it shows us this. It has showed us the gospel time and time again. A picture of the whole world under the judgment of God because of sin. A need for a Savior. And how that Savior must come from beyond our experience into our experience. Which we as Christians, of course, know that's exactly what Jesus did and will do. One author always said the book of Lamentations preaches the cross. In doing so, it unmasks the pretenses and hypocrisy of humankind in every generation, pushing all who read its poetry to reflect on the meaning and purpose of their own lives. Within this dominant theme of despair, there are indicators that God was going to do a new work. And in the fullness of time, that new work, the Word of God, became enfleshed. Jesus, crucified, resurrected. And through His Word, God is not aloof towards despair. Even despair of our own making, but has taken that despair into and upon Himself through the cross and the resurrection of His Son. And at that moment, He brings healing and immortality to light. Amen, anybody? We see the beauty of the gospel of Jesus through the lens of lamentations because we realize how serious the judgment is. And then we begin to understand what Jesus really took upon himself on the cross. And then we can sing and live a new life with great grandeur. Why? Because we understand what we were really saved from. As I've said time and time again, we will never celebrate, we will never serve, we will never give our lives to the kingdom, we will never sing at the top of our lungs until we begin to understand the severity of the wrath against us and what Jesus said when he said, I'll take your place. But there are two things that I want to end with in this series. As we prepare for the fall, as we release our DNA document in September, as we in October gather together and begin to unveil the work we've been doing all summer solid for four months about how to reach 10,000 and the next steps as we gather together as a community praying for revival and a new work of God, God has given us this book for reasons because there are two serious themes that will prepare the ground for our future. Here's the first one. Rarely again talked about publicly, but so needed. The first is memory and the future. When we remember, hear this please, and act on history so it is not repeated for ourselves or others. Lamentations has fulfilled its role and God is pleased. One outlined it graphically this way. When you visit the concentration camps in Auschwitz or Birkenau in Poland, you'll begin to see reports or you'll see the plaques that have been erected on the rubble of one of the crematoriums. Each plaque says essentially the same thing, although they're inscribed, of course, in many different languages. And this is how the English plaque reads in Auschwitz and Birkenau. Forever let this be a place to be a cry of despair and a warning 
to humanity. The complexes, the person writes, serves as a crucial educational role. Let this be a warning to humanity never to do this again. Is that not what Lamentations is for us as a faith community? Is it not just simply look, listen, do not repeat? Is this not the call of heaven for us as a community? Is this not what Lamentations is actually crying out to some of you who are beginning to walk away from God and you think it's okay? And you're about to experience Lamentations and in heaven is saying to you, you don't need to do this. Lamentations is saying to us, do not repeat. One wrote, with regard to the people's memory, this shameful and oppressive nature of what happened at the hands of the Babylonians was kept in memory, and thus it was hoped would become instructional for later generations of followers of God. The circumstances functioned as a teaching device explaining why God's people had fallen and warning them of the consequences. Lamentations functions to keep a sad and oppressive and dangerous period alive in memory and in influence so it does not get repeated. Here's my challenge to you as one of your pastors. When was the last time you stopped and you actually talked with your children, your friends, your small group about times when you sinned greatly and you yourself had to live through lamentations? Testimony in churches is not always about conversion and God moments on hilltops and baptism services. They are also laments, but they are rarely spoken about in churches. I challenge you to get the courage, the courage to talk to each other about the times when you failed the greatest. I challenge you who are older to talk to the next generation of Jesus followers like myself and others underneath me. No matter age and stage, these things will build our unity, purity, and relationships as we move towards 10,000. Tell your story to others so they don't need to read and relate to lamentations like you had to. Warning, counsel, and hope are all mixed together in Lamentations tells us how to do this. So go and do it. I think in churches we've bought into a lie. We've said, well, my past is forgiven, so I don't need to bring that up again. No. I need to hear about your failures so I don't repeat them. Some of us say, well, I'm ashamed. I don't want to go back there. God has dealt with your shame. God is dealing continually with guilt and shame and restoring us. But if you don't take the courage, once you're in a better place, to share how you failed, many others among us will repeat what you did. Lamentations enshrines within Scripture the call to talk about our failures and when God's judgment, not His eternal judgment, but His hand came on us and we were broken because then we can say to others, whether they listen or not, it's their responsibility. But we can say to them, you don't have to do this too. God redeems the most broken of us by using our stories to save others. Memory, history, affects our future. So many of us here don't need to repeat what you did, but we don't know you did it. Lamentations teaches us as the people of God, in safety, to be open. Because once we hear about the brokenness, you also get to talk about how he saved you again. I don't mean eternally. And how he restored you and how he forgave you. 
It's in brokenness and grace that God has seen best. Amen? Tell your story, please. And don't let your ego get in the way. Here's the last thing I end with. Not only are we taught about memory, we are taught about one other thing. We're taught about revival. Verse 21 summarizes how personal and corporate revival always happens in the people of God. Lamentations is the great precursor to all moves of God in history because Lamentations is where people are honest about their sin and ask God in desperation to do something about it. Do you notice in Lamentations there's no, I'll sit back and see if this happens, God? I'll let other people pray, but I'm just fine, thank you very much. I'll let other weird prayer people wrestle about that, but I'm just fine. It's a corporate call. Hear the prayer again. Restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we get to return. Renew our days as of old. As I shared in April and May and before, here's what revival is from different authors, but it all meets out in this verse. Revival is the sovereign act of God which he restores his own backsliding people to repentance, faith, and obedience. It's an awakening or quickening of God's people to their true nature and purpose. It's the return of the church from her backsliding and the conversion of sinners. It's an extraordinary movement of the Holy Spirit producing extraordinary results. I love this last one. It's just a community saturated with God. Lamentations teaches us as a community that we must continue to call on God to move in this church in a way we have never experienced no matter the cost. First, we need to personally go before God again and again this whole year and say, I'm open, I'm expectant, what do I need to deal with? What sin, what views of you, what are you asking of me? And then we as a community need to continually, personally and corporately, day after day, pray until something happens. We're not saying, oh, God, show up because we want a big church. We're not saying, oh, God, show up because we're starting this. We're saying, God, you've started this, and we're coming with expectation. All of us, children, small group leaders, teens, young adults, adults, we all need to say, God, we pray this prayer. Restore us. You've given us two promises. 2 Chronicles 5 and 2 Corinthians 5 are promises given by God to this leadership that he's going to do something. And now we need to call God, call God to do this among us. But we need to get to the place where we take this seriously. That we as a family say these words continually, every day. Restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we get to return. Restore us to yourself, O Lord, so we get to return. Renew our days as of old. As we shared in some of the prayer meetings on Wednesday night and other contexts, 98% of us in this church have never experienced a genuine revival in a community. There's a few of us. More than half of them happened 50 years ago in other countries. But it's this little phrase right here that gets me. Renew our days as of old. I end Lamentations by asking you this. Are you desperate enough Are you desperate enough as a pastor, as an elder, as someone on Mac, as an MTL person, as a person who serves? Are you desperate enough to say to God, anything, anything for your move? I want to experience the days of old that I've read about but has never been seen in Canada, never been seen in this church, never been experienced. How many of you have been waiting your whole lifetime for a move of God amongst a whole group of people and you're desperate but you've stopped praying just because you're bored or tired or you wonder. This teaches us to pray and pray and pray until it happens. Because you know what? You read your Bible. 
God protected them in the exile like they prayed. And then Nehemiah and Ezra brought them back. And they restored, they were restored to the land. And then out of them, who came? Who? Jesus. My challenge to you as we start this year together is tell your story of pain and sin so it does not be repeated. And take this as a verse for the year where we pray until God moves in a way that is unnatural, beyond personality, beyond our church's ability, and we will all know it as him because he has restored us and he has brought days of old we only used to read about. Pray with me, if you will. Lord, we first of all as a family want to thank you that your word is amazing. And thank you. A lot of us don't do this. Thank you, Lord, that we even own Bibles to get to read them. And Lord, we want to say right now, thank you for the book of Lamentations. Forgive us, God, actually, for not reading parts of your scripture because they're uncomfortable. And Lord, here's our prayer. For the many of us who have been part of this journey who don't know you yet, we pray that you would show them the severity of trouble they're in and then the great mercy you have through Jesus. It's been our prayer through this whole series. Lord, I pray for those who have had really broken pasts and also those who have had pretty good pasts but there have been times of failing, that they would, in the right time, in the right space, have the courage to share their sin and the results and then your grace so others don't need to repeat it. And we pray as a community, Lord, help us not to walk away from you. And lastly, we pray this prayer. Restore us to yourself, O Lord. So we get to return. Renew our days as of old. We cry out an old prayer in this church. God, do anything you need to do for your glory, for our freedom, which is translated here, rest, so the world actually gets to see Jesus clearly. Lord, move or we die. Move or our community dies. Move or we waste our lives. We ask this wanting the Father's will in the name of Jesus revealed by the Spirit. And all of God's people said, Amen. Thank you for joining us. For more teaching, info, or to give financially, please visit us at our website, crotherscreek.ca.